This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Catherine Smith, who has written a biography of the fabulous Gertrude Sanford Legend, an heiress, explorer, socialite, spy. It's a very interesting tale of a South Carolina native and I would say her exploits. So, Catherine, with that introduction, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Great to be here. First of all, let's talk a little bit about you. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. You're from Anderson, but let's talk about your background, how you decided to get involved with this, and so forth and so on. Okay. Well, I have a checkered past. I was a newspaper reporter. Um, I am a native of Macon, Georgia. I moved to Atlanta when I was little, and then my father took a teaching position at Clemson, so I pretty much grew up there, went to high school there, went to the University of Georgia, majored in journalism, worked in daily papers for 17 years, um, then I worked in nonprofits for 17 years. And when I decided to um, retire early, I just went back to writing and editing. And it's been just a wonderful eight years. I've written uh, this biography and another one on Marguerite Lahand, who was FDR's private secretary. I've co-authored four mystery novels with a friend, Kelly Durham, um, just about to release another book. And um, I've also done a lot of, of editing for other books, so it's just been a whole lot of fun. Um, as far as, as settling on Gertie as the topic for my second biography, I have a really good friend named Linda Harrell who is very interested, as so many people are, in South Carolina plantations. And she was just you know, tooling around on the Internet one day and found the story of, of Medway Plantation, which Gertie and her husband Sidney owned, and started telling me just the broad outlines of Gertrude's life. She said, you would not believe the woman who owned this plantation. She was an heiress. She was really rich. Um, she bought Medway Plantation. She was a big game hunter. She partied on the Riviera with the Fitzgeralds in the 20s. Um, she led all these scientific expeditions. And then during World War II, she joined the OSS, and she got captured by Germans, and she escaped over the Swiss border. And I said, wait, 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 wait. We're still talking about one person? Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and, and all of that is true, and then, and then more. And then more, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Obviously, she is an incredible person, but let's start off with her family, because the Sanfords, that's where the money came from right. initially. Right. So I think a little bit of that background, because that leads to how she got to Aiken, and then yeah. it helped finance eventually the purchase of Medway. Right, and everything she got to do. Yeah, her family was from um, New York. Her father, uh, well, her father was the, you know, owner, operating manager of Sanford Carpet Company. It had been founded by his grandfather before the Civil War in Poughkeepsie, and the company had just grown and grown and grown and had eventually become the largest maker of uh, woven floor coverings in the country. So they were just filthy rich. And this was in a time, the time of the robber barons, when there was no income tax, there was no inheritance tax, uh, very little regulation of manufacturing. So you just basically played paid your workers starvation wages and kept everything. And, and eventually, interestingly, because people know this name, Sanford merged with Bigelow, and mm-hmm. everybody heard about Bigelow carpets with a Bigelow on the floor. Yeah. You know. Yeah, Bigelow Sanford, and that you know became just this huge conglomerate. And in fact, her father sold the company or merged with Bigelow just on the the very day of the stock market crash of 1929, and he had made a very advantageous deal in. They weathered that without any problem, too. The other side of the family, though, were also Sanfords. Um, Her mother was a Sanford. And so just like Eleanor Roosevelt married a cousin who was a Roosevelt and became Eleanor Roosevelt Roosevelt, her mother became Ethel Sanford Sanford. Her father was Abraham Lincoln's um, ambassador to Europe during... uh, the Civil War and operated as the late Christopher Dickey said, kind of like a rogue CIA agent. Um, After the war, he came home or made an investment in orange groves in Sanford, Florida, got wiped out, and they sort of um, married off Ethel to a older cousin who had not found a wife yet and needed an heir. And that was, those are her parents. Okay. So how did they end up in Aiken? Now, we, we... 
We all know that Aiken in the late 19th century, along with Camden, was where rich Yankees came exactly. to spend uh, the winter months, especially if they were into things horsey, whether it was steeplechase or polo or what have you. Right. And that was why they were there. Um, Mr. Sanford was a thoroughbred racing stable owner of st- owned a stud farm in, called Hurricana, and he um, loved horses. That was that was he was really much more interested in that than the than the carpet business. So he had been coming to Aiken for some time before he married his wife, and then they continued to do that. They didn't own a, a cottage as they called them there, but they would always rent a, a large house. And Gertie was the third of their children, their three children, and she's the only one who was born outside of New York. She was born in March, so I think it was almost an accident. I just think they didn't get home in time for her to be born in New York, so she was born in Aiken. <laughs> and spent a lot of her childhood winters there. Um, her brother became one of the best-known polo players in the world, Laddie Sanford. And uh, she grew up around horses and loved horses. She rode way into her 80s. Well, she had a fairly typical upbringing for folks in that strata, not particularly much by her parents. She had private schooling, nannies, Mm -hmm. and she was an accomplished horsewoman. She also, very early on, became a hunter. Yes. So how did that happen? I mean, most New York debutantes did not become (laughs) hunters. Well, there was a certain subset who did. It it was very much in vogue among that set, and a surprising number were. Um, But Gertie had always enjoyed bird hunting and that kind of thing, and... Um, when she was a little girl, she uh, her parents had this celebrated lion hunter, Paul Rainey, to their house. So the rich people would try to outdo each other with their celebrity guest, and um, they had Paul Rainey, and he showed films of his Africa um, lion hunts, and he was famous. These these African lion hunts, which you know were just done at the very beginnings of motion pictures. Um, Rainey had had killed, and we all shudder to think about this, but in one hunt, 125 lions. But anyway, Paul Rainey had come to her parents' house, and they were showing the movies. And uh, I remember, I don't know if you remember when you were a kid sneaking out of bed to see what was going on when your parents were having a dinner party. Yes. <laughs> That's what Gertie did. And she looked uh, down, you know, between the slats of the banister and saw these flickering images of a lion hunt. And she was so enthralled and decided that's what she wanted to do someday. So when she graduated from Foxcroft School, where she got her high school education, she asked her father to send her on a big game hunt, and he sent her out west to the Grand Tetons, and she killed her first large animal, which is an elk. And that was just the beginning of her lust for um, big game hunting. Well. She was known for her trophies. Did she bring home that first? She did. She did. And actually, it is still in the family. It belongs to her granddaughter, who has a ranch out and lives out in Wyoming. How about that? Okay, so she's a teenager now, and she's she's sent on this hunt out west. Yeah. But she really has big game in mind. Right. In Africa. Yeah. And she continues to go on hunts to Alaska. I mean, she shot a bear, that kind of thing. She was just living kind of a rich girl's perfect life, going to speakeasies. Her mother seems to have taken a greater um, personal interest in her children as they got older. So she was, you know, exposing them to great art and music, uh, the opera and that kind of thing. Um, she'd have Arthur Rubenstein come and play the piano for their guests. The Prince of Wales made this famous tour of America around them. They had a dinner party for the Prince of Wales. And then Mrs. Sanford died of cancer just a month or two later. And the headlines in the paper were, Hostess to Prince of Wales dies. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, so um, Gertie and her brother Laddie were at a um, horse race one day, and they ran into a couple they knew, a married couple, who were going on a safari to British East Africa, Kenya, and invited them to go along. And their dad said, sure, I'll pay for you to go. And that was when she got to go to Africa for the first time. And they came back with the big five, you know, a rhino, a hippo, an elephant, a, you know, ty- now was, was a lion. This the, was this the trip when she met her husband? No, this was just the, the warm-up trip. The warm-up trip, yeah, okay. Yeah, this was her first trip to Africa. But anyway, she started thinking about the idea of leading a scientific expedition, which would have more of a purpose than just, you know, shooting up animals. Um, So she came back. Her family went to England that summer. 
doing horse. They were um, Laddie was playing polo professionally, and they were doing horse stuff. And um, she met these two um, gorgeous brothers from New Orleans, um, the Lejean brothers, Sidney and Morris, and was just immediately quite taken with them. Um, but she also met a couple named Gerald and Sarah Murphy, and the Murphys had had brought into vogue the French Riviera in the off-season. They were expatriates from America. They had moved to escape Prohibition and the Harding administration and all that, made friends with the Hemingways and the Picassos and the Fitzgeralds and um, just that whole lit art crowd. And they invited her and her sister Janie to come out for a week um, and spend it with them at their uh, their home villa, America. So they came and just had a ball, and they decided to stay. So they rented this huge mansion, 28-room mansion, and then sent a cable to the Lejean brothers saying, hey, come on over. We've got new jobs as lifeguards for the hotel here. And um, the hotel owner wasn't really sure that he needed lifeguards, but as Gertie said, I can be very persuasive. So the boys (laughs) came over. They had rooms because they were supposedly lifeguards, and then they just had a ball all summer. They made friends with Harpo Marks, and they'd drive him around in the convertible playing his harp, and uh, she just has great stories about Harpo Marks, quite a character. And other people and did lots of skiing. And the boys um, went to a carpenter. They had been surfers. So they went to a carpenter and got these big wooden um, surfboards made that could be pulled by a motorboat. And they would, would get out on the boards and do all kinds of tricks, you know, sitting in chairs. And Gertie would climb up on one guy's shoulders and all that. And Somerset Mon complained about all the noise he was trying to write. So that kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Let's get her married. Well, how did she choose? She she fell in love with both. Or they were both very attractive, very wealthy, yeah, very prominent, very New, charming New Orleans family. Yeah, not as wealthy by far as she was, and I've heard it said that they were both fortune hunters. But um, she um, started talking up this trip to Africa she wanted to make, and when she got back to New York, she went over to see the director of the American Museum of Natural History, um, which was just across Central Park from her family's huge mansion. And um, uh, now, the mansion is still there. Oh, for, yeah. It on, belongs to the Emir of Qatar now. Yeah, it's on uh, <laughs> 72nd Street. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, beautiful place. Um, <clears throat> anyway, and the the man listened very politely. You just can't imagine what he must have been thinking of this 27-year-old flapper. And then he told her that it would cost $30,000 just to mount the, the specimens when they came back, not to mention the cost of the expedition. And that's, you know, that's close to half a million dollars in today's money. And so not to be discouraged, she did what any rich girl would do. She went home and asked her daddy for the money. And <laughs> uh, when she told him what she wanted, he was so quiet for so long, she was afraid that he had not heard her. And then finally he said, yes, my child, I approve of these museums and their exhibits that enable people to see the wilds of Africa that they'll never see. Yes, I'll pay for the whole expedition. So she was assigned a naturalist with the museum, and she sent a cable to the Lejean brothers and said, hey, we're, all, we're going to Africa. Come along. And as she said, they were pretty surprised. So this is a very forward thing for this unmarried girl to do. But they met at the Ritz Bar in Paris, and they went off to Africa for about, I think, seven or eight months. They were in search of a particular antelope called a Nyala. It was called the Queen of Sheba's Antelope, known for its lyre-shaped horns. And they did come back with a grouping of those, um, you know, a buck, a doe, uh, a couple of fawns. And then um, the naturalists collected all sorts of other specimens. And they, you know, they all did all sorts of birds and bugs and rodents and all that. So came back, I think, with about 300 different specimens. Very successful expedition. Meanwhile, she had um, both of the brothers, the legend has it, proposed to her. She found them both very attractive. But they had a a time when they had to split up, and somebody had to go back to Nairobi with the specimens before they went bad. And the boys flipped a coin, and Sidney lost the toss and had to take the animals back. And that left Morris, you know, to make his case. And Gertie discovered that she missed Sidney. 
And that made her realize that he was the brother she wanted. He was quieter. Morris was a lot more like Sydney, uh, like um, Gertie. He was loud. He was funny. He liked to be in control. Sydney was a lot quieter and a better listener, and that's what she decided um, attracted her. And he could also be moody. He could be moody. He was a perfectionist, and everyone talked about his, his moodiness, and she did too. But he was definitely the love of her life. Well, they got married. Mm-hmm. Went Not on. as big a wedding as one would think. And it was thrown together pretty quickly. Um, she came back as sort of a celebrity, and the New York papers said, you know, jungle trail leads to altar and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, they had a wedding at a, a St. James Church near her home and then had the wedding reception there. Then she and Sydney went off on a hunting trip for their honeymoon. Got this was just before the crash. Just before, weeks before the crash. So yeah. she got tons of wedding presents. Yeah. yeah. Literally. Yeah. I, I wonder about if some of her guests were wiped out and like, God, I wish I could get that silver tea set from Tiffany's back. But. <laughs> But they uh, they went off on their honeymoon, and I love the part she describes that they were snowbound in a tent for days and said, it was glorious. <laughs> <laughs> where, where were they snowbound? Uh, they went to um, British Columbia and then also to Alaska. And then these newlyweds come back come back to South Carolina. Well, they they take a trip. They go down to see Gertie's father, who has bought a mansion in Palm Beach, and that's where he and Laddie, his um, son, spent the rest of their, their lives pretty much. And they didn't want to live in Palm Beach. They wanted somewhere between New York and Palm Beach, and they motored up to South Carolina and stayed with um, a couple of the Kittredges they knew, um, an older couple who had a plantation in Berkeley County. And they were off on a picnic one day uh, on horseback and came across Medway Plantation, which was just um, in derelict condition. Um, it had been a rice plantation um, dated back to colonial times. A colonial governor had owned it at one point. And the house, um, had the family that owned it was said to have prayed, um, Dear God, please send us a rich Yankee. And the, sto- the Stonies. <laughs> the Stonies. And the Lord provided Gertrude in Sydney. And they looked at the bones of this house and just thought, oh, this could be, you know, the place for us. And the house dates from 1703. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's supposedly the oldest masonry brick house in the state, and so probably one of the oldest in the country. It, of course, it had no indoor plumbing, no electricity. There was no electricity. They had to install a generator. Uh, the roof had fallen in. It was being used as a hunting lodge by the, the Stoney family. And um, But they were just, just smitten. They went to her father. He wasn't so keen, but he said, sure, I'll help you buy it. And they bought it for $300,000. And eventually they expanded their holdings to some, what, 10,000 mm. 10, acres? Some, yeah. Um, I think in the end it was about 7,500. But it was, you know, made quite, they kept buying other plantations. And sometimes the plantations would awful have houses and they would, you know, cherry pick the best paneling and all that from the other houses and install it at Medway. But they eventually made it quite a comfortable home. Like many folks, they have they still have wealth. They did not lose their family fortune in, right. in, the, in the depression. Right. They they traveled. They lived in South Carolina. They mm-hmm. lived in New York some, mm-hmm. and rest of the time they were traveling. Right. They used um, Medway was their what they considered their permanent home, but um, Gertie had could not bear the heat of a southern summer like many of us wish we had that opportunity. So um, they would travel a lot. Eventually, much later, she bought a second home for the summer off um, Long Island Sound on Fishers Island. But yeah, they would they would be at Medway, usually would come in um, in the fall and spend the whole winter there and leave in the, the spring. Um, traveling places and they they would go on these expeditions they went they took a long one um, for the Museum of Natural History again and went to um, what we think of today as Vietnam Laos Cambodia it was then French Indochina and Gertie was very often the first um, white woman any of these villagers had seen um, they were in such remote areas and you know they would start beating drums and people would come from three three days away to see her and poke at her and and that kind of thing um, and she was you know she was the only woman again on this expedition and and just but this time it out this time Sydney's with her but this time Sydney's with her yeah yeah and 
they they managed to have they have two children. Somehow they managed to have two children. Um, one in was not born until 1940. But again, this was a time when the rich farmed out the raising their their children to staff, and that's what Gertie and Sydney did. And there were repercussions for that. She never had a very close relationship. There were two girls. Two girls. Yeah. Never had a very close relationship Mm-mm. with them, and Mm-mm. the later relationship, which with yeah. one with the older daughter, completely soured. Yeah. Catherine, we need to pause a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Catherine Smith about her biography of Gertie, the fabulous life of Gertrude Sanford Lejeune. So, Catherine, let's get back to, you mentioned 1940. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bacara, their younger daughter, was born in 1940. And um, in 1941, they were at Medway when Pearl Harbor happened. They were just having a nice, quiet evening at home, and, and Sydney was grousing about something that had gone wrong with the, with the plantation and the farming. And his brother Morris, who lived nearby, called up and said, do you have the radio on? Quick, turn it on. The, ja- the Japanese have bombed Pearl Harbor. Um, and Sidney knew, you know, this is the end. And he said he, Sidney kept uh, beautiful diaries. He was a wonderful writer and um, published uh, accounts of their expeditions and stuff. And he wrote about, you know, how foolish I was to be worrying about some minor detail on the farm. This is the end of everything. So he and Morris um, joined the Navy. <clears throat> they went in as lieutenants. They were both um, close to 40 years of age. And Gertie joined the Red Cross and did some Red Cross work in Charleston. When Sydney got transferred to Washington, she went up there with him, with the girls, and um, then he got sent to Hawaii. And he and Morris spent the remainder of the war in Hawaii at Pearl Harbor, which was a pretty good station after December 7th, 1941. They pretty much just went to Luau's and surfed and um, even opened a bathing suit shop. But Gertie wanted to, um, once she missed Sydney terribly, so she wanted to occupy her time. She wanted to do something for the war effort. Uh, she tried to get into the Red Cross to be sent over abroad. They wouldn't have her because she had children. And eventually she found a job with the new Office of Strategic Services, which was the predecessor of the CIA. Uh, run by Wild Bill Donovan. Run by Wild Bill Donovan. Yeah, what a character. Uh, he was a, a Republican, actually. He had run for governor of New York at one point, and FDR appointed him head of this, just told him, just build this thing from scratch. It had another another name. You used one sobriquet in oh, your yeah. book. Yeah. Oh, so secret. <laughs> yeah, yes, but it also was called Oh, so social. Oh, oh, so social, because, yeah. Because yeah. it was peopled by... Yeah, the upper crust. Yeah. The upper crust. The upper crust, yeah. I, Ivy Leaguers. Right. So how did she end up there? She knew someone. Um, I don't I don't know if it was Donovan or if it was um, Colonel Bruce, L.K. Bruce, but she got a job working there over their cable desk. So it's basically an office job, but it was a pretty exciting one. Just all this top secret information was coming across her desk. She had a staff. The pace was very quick. She, you know, Gertie had never worked a day in her life, so this was quite a change for her. But um, it, after a while, she got bored with it. She hated the, the weather in Washington, um, all the rain. Um, she missed Sydney. She kept trying to get out to Hawaii, and the Navy had a policy that they wouldn't have a husband and wife in the same theater. So everything she did, I mean, she knew the secretary of the Navy, and she couldn't even get sent out there. So she had a lot of dinner parties and rubbed elbows with all these people. And finally, the time came when Colonel Bruce was going to go over to London um, to head up the OSS office there. And Gertie wrote to Sydney and said, what do you think? If I just went for six months, we could leave the children with your relatives in New Orleans, and um, it would be just a great opportunity. And he said, sure, do it. So she did. Um, she went to London. This was um, at the time of what they called the Baby Blitz, when the Germans were launching um, propelled rockets, unmanned rockets, B-1s and B-2s. So this is late in the war. Late in the war. Um, she went over there in '43, And Gertie, um, you know, just, I mean, she, she had to, but she was thrilled by all this stuff, the rockets. She would sometimes sneak out and, and, you know, part her blackout curtains to watch the rockets rain down on London. She was having a dinner party one night for all these big shots of the, the ambassador from America to England, John Winnett, and 
um, they called it the Recycle Reunion because they'd all been flyers in World War One. And a V-1, they heard a V-1 rocket coming down the street, just going putt, 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 putt. And it overshot her house by about a block. But it would have killed half the high command if it had hit her garden. So. Well, she, she seemed to like to push the envelope. Absolutely. She loved, she was a thrill seeker. And that got her in trouble. Yeah. Well, after D-Day, which was a, was a very exciting day in her diary, it was wonderful to read about, um, things started emptying out in London, and she really wanted to get closer to the war, and the opportunity came to go to France and set up the cable desk in Paris. And she and a handful of others were selected. Um, she went over there, and for the first time, she was put in uniform because Eisenhower wanted all the Americans there um, in uniform to make to enlarge the presence. And so she came over. She was staying with a, a friend who had an apartment, looking for a place to live. You know, she did some shopping and sightseeing. She'd been to Paris many times before, and. She was getting kind of antsy because their um, headquarters wasn't open yet, and she still had about five days of leave. So she went over to the Ritz Bar, um, what they call the Ladies' Bar, now the the Bar Hemingway at the Ritz Hotel, and it was crammed with war correspondents. Colonel Bruce and Hemingway had been with this ragtag group of resistance fighters following the French into Paris, and Hemingway decided he was going to liberate the, the Ritz Hotel. So they go to the Ritz, and it's already been liberated by the British, but Hemingway, who is ostensibly a war correspondent, not supposed to carry a weapon, comes in with his machine gun, chases the British out, and then claims that he's liberated the hotel. Then he takes a large suite and just basically stays there holding court for seven months. And um, all these war correspondents would start hanging out there, and they were all headed up to... um, Luxembourg, because that's where the army had gone, where Patton's army had gone. And Gertie was just green with envy hearing them talk. And then a friend of hers came in, who she had worked with at the OSS in London, knew slightly, and he joined her for a drink. And, and he had been, you know, kind of a paper jockey, too. And they were just moaning and groaning about not getting to be close enough to the action. And he said, you know, I've got access to an old Peugeot that the Germans left behind. I bet it could make the trip. Why don't we just drive up there and see what we can see? She didn't even think twice. She said, that would be great. So the next morning, this man, Bob Jenkins, picked her up, and they headed off to Luxembourg. Well, they had car trouble all the way up there. Finally had to have their car towed into Luxembourg, and Patton had already you know, gone another 75 miles north. Um, they had not really seen any action, so they were having breakfast in their hotel waiting to get their car that afternoon, and another man came in that, that Bob Jennings knew, also with the OSS, a major. And um, he said, what are you doing so far afield? Because um, Bob Jennings was a Navy observer. And they told her, oh, the lady wanted to hear some gunfire. And this uh, fellow says, oh, well, I, I can I can take you up to um, Waldorf. It's right at the, the front. We just captured it. Um, I'm going up there to interrogate some prisoners. I've got a Jeep outside. We'll just drive up there, and you'll be back in time for tea, and you can drive back to Paris tonight. So they just got up and left. Gertie didn't get anything out of her room. She just got her, you know, took her purse with her. And... They got in the car. Um, they went by the headquarters to be sure that this was a, a safe place. And Major Papert came out um, with his thumbs up, saying, yep, it's perfectly safe, but you'll still be able to hear some gunfire. And it wasn't perfectly safe. When they got there, it had changed hands again. It was back in the Germans' hands. They were pinned down um, by snipers, and they were all taken prisoner. Um, Papert and the driver were wounded in the attack, seriously wounded, and they were taken to a, uh, a prison hospital. And Gertie and Jennings were taken prisoner and um, remained in German hands until almost the end of the war. She's taken prisoner, mm-hmm. and back home, nobody knows what's Nobody happened. knows, right. She had some very interesting POW experiences, particularly with a German lieutenant. Yeah, she did. Um, The only reason they knew she had been taken, someone on German radio made a single announcement that was heard in the United States um, saying that she had been taken prisoner. Um, They identified her as a a lieutenant because she had the lieutenant's uniform, even though she was, you know, a civilian. 
And then after that, the OSS would not claim her or Jennings because she knew so much. I mean, she knew about all these operatives in the field. Um, she'd been reading all these cables. And, and there was an- another wonderful New York headline. Oh, yeah. So Laddie Sanford's sister captured was the something like that. Or, it, well, it, I thought it was socialite bag. Yes, yeah, so ba- that was her cut line in a picture in Newsweek. It just said bagged under it. Oh, I know. As a, as a, as a hunter. That was... <laughs> I know. So, it, uh, yes, I mean, actually her, her being captured could have been a tremendous security breach. Yes, it was. And um, Donovan was very upset, though, as I say in my book, Donovan had made so many risky decisions personally that he really, really didn't have room to talk. But she was a woman, so. But Gertie established a cover story for herself that she was just a secretary at the embassy in London. She'd been lent as an interpreter because she spoke French. She made up that she just did, all she did was filing. She invented co-workers, and she stuck to that story and never wavered over the six months when she was interrogated many times, not tortured, but just repeatedly interrogated. Um, So she was taken to various places um, sort of as an interim, and then she and Bob were taken to a a castle, a 13th century castle that she said looked like an ogre's lair, and they were kept there mostly in solitary confinement for a month, and that was when she met... um, a young German um, officer about her age who was her interrogator. She spent many, many evenings with him. And even though she always stuck to the story, she loosened up enough. They became cordial. He started confiding that that he knew Germany was going to lose the war. Um, you know, they would drink coffee together. They sometimes have wine. <laughs> and after she was sent to another posting, he um, kept up with her throughout the end of the war. And she really felt that she that he had looked after her and helped her to get free. Because it, because it, at one point. The Gestapo. She was she was in the hands of the Gestapo. Yeah, his name was Bill Gosowich, and he had actually lived in the United States and been educated. Went to Columbia, spoke perfect English. So um, the Gestapo took her to Berlin. Um, she was at Gestapo headquarters briefly, and then went to a Gestapo mansion um, in the the Wannsee area of Berlin, and was kept under um, close watch with two German police women. Um, for about three months. How did she escape? Well, let me tell you the most interesting posting first was that uh, that it came after that. In the middle of just a just a terrible battle and um, raining gunfire and bombs and missiles and all that through through Germany, she was driven all the way to Bonn, and she went to the the Rhine Hotel Dresden, which had been one of Hitler's favorite hotels before the war. She was a POW there with about 143 high-ranking French army officers from the previous war. They'd been swept up thinking that the French would bring them back into service. And the only other woman there was Charles de Gaulle's sister. And so they they were there and just they just created a prison camp, as all the prison camps did, with the highest-ranking officer in charge. And they did things to keep themselves from going insane. They had classes. They played games. They um, they made things. Um, she taught uh, English as a second language using the book Three Men in a Boat, not to mention the dog as the text, and um, made some good friends there. And then um, as the Americans got closer and closer, they were moved um, farther on. She was picked out of that group and taken to a, um, was just kept with a, a doctor and his wife, German doctor and his wife, and finally was t- notified that she was going to be released. She was taken to a border town um, that, that had a, a, just a very short train ride between Germany and Switzerland. And when they got there, her paperwork had not arrived. So she was given an a, a uh, opportunity to hide on the train that went over the border to Switzerland and make a run for it. And that's what she did. And once she was free, the word got out. I mean, very quickly got yeah. back home. Yeah. Donovan explodes again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and actually, her fellow adventurer Jennings got mm. drummed out of the service. He did, yeah. He had a much harder time than she did. He he came down with typhus. He lost down to about 80 pounds. They actually got together on um, VE Day 
in New York and had a very long lunch. You can imagine that lots of martinis were imbibed and just compared all their notes of, of what had happened. So she she's back home. The mm-hmm. war is over. Mm-hmm. Sydney's still in Hawaii. Yeah. She goes out to join him there. And um, they had a wonderful few months staying in Hawaii. But they decide to come back to Medway and um, had a few more you know, great adventures after that. Uh, did more more hunting. Went on not more, well, more hunting, but more expeditions to to uh, to India, and we're planning to uh, continue that. And then, Sydney dies. Yeah. His brother had died at an early. He was in his mid forties. He was in his late forties. There must have been a, a bad heart um, in that family because. Um, Multiple. His mother had died young, one of his brothers. So, Catherine, we need to pause again to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Catherine Smith about her latest book, Gertie. We're talking about Gertrude Sanford Lejeune. Her husband dies, and she has her girls back. Well, both girls are at school when they find out mm-hmm. that, that that their father has died. Mm-hmm. And one of the daughters has premonitions. She did. Londine just had a, a premonition that, that her father had died. Uh, um, Londine was about, I think about 12 or 13 then. She was also at Foxcroft, which she loved. So she came home. Her younger sister, Bukhara, who's about five or six, was in Aiken. They would send her to a day school there and boarded her in a, in a boarding house with her nanny. So she came back for the funeral, and um, then they were both sent back right up, back to school right after that. And then there's an ill-fated second marriage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with, with <laughs> Opiate, opioid addiction story there. Yeah. A man who she had met during the war um, named um, Piggy Weeks, um, and he was a surgeon, but uh, unknown to her, he had become addicted to uh, morphine because of war injuries, and um, it was a very miserable second marriage. Which which ended in, in divorce. divorce, yeah. Um, but she never gets close to her girls. Her girls grow up. Yeah, she was closer to Bakara, the younger one, but um, a lot of bitterness there and uh, anger um, that just really went on for the rest of Gertie's life. Well, one of the things she did after the war that I found interesting is, first of all, when she was, I don't want to say dismissed, but... Bill Donovan said, you're out of here. She mm-hmm. had to sign all sorts of documents about mm-hmm. secrecy, what have you. Mm-hmm. She went on a one-woman PR campaign about her war stories. <laughs> yes, she did. Uh, Collier's Magazine. And this was, the war was still going on, actually, that she was... Um she she got home, you know. She got gained her weight back. She got to and smoke she, all the cigarettes. She tried to get a job as a war correspondent in the was, Far East. She was she was bored. Yeah, she immediately, bored. immediately. <laughs> uh, well, of course, she got she did get a job as a war correspondent, and then the war ended. That's right. That's right. So that nobody was interested in her story anymore. So she wrote a book, um, The Sand Ceased to Run, which she self-published, and it was a detailed story of her adventures and sold very badly. I think they only printed about 1,000 copies, and I'm lucky to have one of them. Well, actually, Catherine, in those days, 1,000 copies was a little bit better than fairly we routine. Okay. But when you mentioned, you know, I loved your line, the reception was underwhelming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she sold about 300 copies. She uh, probably gave most of them away, too. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's interesting because her friends in the publishing industry said, now is the time people are still interested in war stories. Mm-hmm. So, But they were not particularly interested in her war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So she just had to kind of move on from there. <laughs> but Medway is still the big focus of her life. Right. And I think this is one of the really interesting things is, is after the war in the 50s, um, she became a conservationist and a very serious one. Um, her daughters thought that was hypocritical, that, you know, you were shooting up all these animals one day and then, you know, all of a sudden you stop. But um, there were several theories about that. One was that she had seen so much carnage during the war that she was just, just over it with, uh, with guns. 
The other was that the world had changed, that um, there had been so much overhunting and poaching in Africa that, that animals were really endangered, and she recognized that. And then she also recognized um, the encroachment of development on the wild places on the coast, including Medway. So she became very, very involved in the preservation, the wildlife and, and land preservation movement in South Carolina. Let's let's talk about her conservation efforts and Medway. Mm-hmm. Um, she's also writing an autobiography, the mm-hmm. time the mm-hmm. time the time of my life. Yeah. And Medway is always a very special place for her. Right. Not so much for the girls. No. So she's trying to figure out how this place can be saved. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Sidney had done, because he became a farm manager before he died, is they developed pine forest, mm-hmm. and they had a timber company, mm-hmm. which brought in money, yep. which helped... Helped underwrite the cost. I don't, I don't know that it was ever a profitable um, venture, but it certainly helped underwrite the cost and, and um, save some of her... Wealth. Because she she's living off of trust trust funds yeah, now, yeah. and and it's not cheap to operate Midway or to be Gertie. <laughs> <laughs> so mm. you mentioned she did get involved with the conservation movement, and there was a meeting at Midway involving Dana Beach, yeah. the Coastal Conservation League, which had just she was one of his original board members, and they convened this meeting at Medway, and I think a month later, Hurricane Hugo blew through and blew down her pine trees. Well, she had worked out a deal with the Audubon Society. She mm-hmm. was going to leave Medway to the Audubon Society mm-hmm. with a trust fund plus the income from the trees, and that would make it Audubon could then... It would be self-supporting. Self-supporting. Yeah. Yeah. But after Hugo, that deal literally blew away. Right. Uh, and Audubon just had to walk away from it because they couldn't take it on without the income. Now, I'm going to go to the... I marked some pages with, that had to do with the post-hurricane. It took six and a half days just to clear the driveway, and it took about three years to eventually clean up the entire acreage of Midway Plantation after Hugo. Mm -hmm. There were 3,657 truckloads of fallen trees were carted off the place, Mm -hmm. and they lost about $6 million worth of timber. Mm -hmm. Just like that. But she she still perseveres and decides that she's going to join up with the hunters, Ducks Unlimited. Mm -hmm. Uh, She didn't have a very good opinion of them to begin with. (laughs) She described them as all men who wanted to shoot ducks and drink beer. (laughs) But they have been very important in preserving wetlands, so they'll have ducks to shoot. And and yeah, and that's, that's who she joined up with. And so she creates a conservation easement Mm -hmm. for the most of the land, except she carves out almost 80 to 90 acres around the house itself, which she deeds the conservation to historic Charleston. Right. She's really concerned about the house, the property. Right, right. Um, And she's in her 80s now. She's still living there, Mm -hmm. spending most of her life there, although she does go to Fisher's. Yeah. In New York. Yeah. Still now. being very social. She held lots of uh, fundraising and charitable events at Medway, held this just wild New Year's Eve party every year. And and one of her daughters married into Charleston families, married yeah. into the Manigos. Mm-hmm. So she's got she's got family and she develops a pretty good relationship with one of her grandchildren, mm-hmm. Pierre Manigo. Mm-hmm. But she also brings back two grandchildren from France. And has them build them houses on the property to manage Medway. Right. She had four grandchildren, and um, these are all um, her daughter Londine's children. Uh, her other daughter never had children. And um, so these are the Wood grandchildren, and they are going to develop a foundation. I think they had in mind something like Bel- what Bel Baruch did at Hopkaw Barony, mm-hmm. but it just was not working. It, the money was just not coming as they wanted and finally it was Gertie was getting to a, to a time in her life when she knew she was running out of time um, <laughs> she had that book that the sand ceased to run they were running fast because I guess because the way the trusts were structured 
she was going to need one of her daughters to agree to um, inherit the property and and promised to put some of those resources toward its upkeep. And Londine was not interested. Bukhara finally said, I'll do it, but I have to have total management, and that means um, the grandchildren have to leave. So she had to tell the grandchildren who had uprooted themselves to come down there to help her run it, they had to go. They had to go. And so that's another rift in the family. Right, right, right. Really sad. So after um, uh, Bukhara had was mostly spent most of her time in California and had very, I don't know, typical California interest, you know, sort of pop she, psychology and stuff like that. And Far that. Eastern religions. Far Eastern religions. She was quite a traveler. Both Londine and, and uh, Bukhara both tremendous travelers. Um, Lond, uh, Bukhara was always trying to find healing with one guru or another, as she put it. And so she um, organized conferences and things at Medway. And when Gertie died, um, she decided to make it her home. So she made some changes that were not real popular, um, such as painting this priceless wood paneling and you know pulling up the, the beautiful, expensive Persian carpets and putting down shag carpeting. But um, anyway, that's what she did. And um, for a few years, she continued to um, operate Medway from a distance. She'd come into town occasionally, but she just did not have the love for the place that her mother did, and um, she eventually put it on the market. I just wanted to back up a minute when when Londine, the older daughter, heard that mother had died. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was contacted by her younger sister, mm-hmm. and Londine said, I'm not coming back for the funeral. Mm-mm. In fact, she had a dinner party in New York to celebrate Mummy's dead. Yeah, Connecticut. But yeah, Mummy's dead. And all her friends cheered. So um, that was, it was, a, it was just not a real happy family. <laughs> but there was some healing toward the end. Uh, you mentioned Pierre Manigo, who was Gertie's youngest grandson. He was the only one who lived in the area, lived in Charleston. Um, his father was the publisher of the Charleston newspapers, Evening Post Industries was his company, and Pierre had, had come into the family business. And um, he was able to, to reconcile with his, his grandmother. He was disappointed by her decision to make the, his half-sisters and half-sister and half-brothers um, leave, but he under, you know, he said, well, that was your decision. They reconciled. He also reconciled with Bukhara, and um, they spent a lot of time at Medway at the end. But for Gertie's funeral, um, all the grandchildren were able to come except Sandy Wood. He was, um, he was out of the country and just couldn't make it back for the funeral. So they did you know, have that. One of the things that Bakara did, and I like the term you used, she decided to exercise <laughs> yeah. her mother's presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but among the things she did that was fortunate, other than pain, <laughs> other than painting the woodwork pink and turquoise, yeah. uh, was to <sighs> donate all the family papers to the library at the College of Charleston. Yes, that was uh, a great thing she did. A hundred and seventy-one linear. Yeah. Feet. Yeah. Because you had mentioned earlier uh, about Sydney's journals. Uh, uh, yeah. And I found that intriguing. We know about hers, but it sounds like he was a better writer. He was. Than she. Yeah. But the whole idea of saving Medway was one that vexed Bakara. Mm-hmm. And so Medway was sold. Mm-hmm. And it has been preserved by the family that that purchased it. Right. And is being very well cared for. In fact, um, most of the same staff is there. Bob Hortman is, um, I believe he's still there. He's, he's, he had been Gertie's manager for many years, delightful gentleman. Um, so he, he was kept on as manager. And the, the new owner is a Greek, ship, Greek shipping magnate. He's put a tremendous amount of money into Medway, so it's in very good shape. And he respects what Gertie wanted to do. He's a, a quail hunter. He was like Gertie was. And um, so he comes and spends part of the year there now. Well, among the things that uh, Bakara did was, besides giving away the 
family papers, she also disposed of all of the trophies, the hunting trophies. Yeah, yeah. What she wanted to do, though, was, as you said, we, we mentioned exorcism. She wanted to burn them and have a ritual, you know, burning and dancing around the, the fire and all that. And Bob Hortman was just horrified by that idea. And he finally convinced her that if that happened, it would release so much formaldehyde that it would kill everybody in the area. <laughs> so they finally settled on burning taking pictures of each animal head and burning the pictures ritualistically, and she had a shaman in and all that. And then Pierre um, purchased the rest, and he's got them in different places. Some are in storage. Some are, um, he's, some are at his, his home. And Well, they had offered them to the Natural History Museum. And <laughs> they, they didn't want just the head. <laughs> they didn't want just the head. Yes, as Bukhara said, they wanted a whole animal deal. She also offered them to the um, Ralph Lauren company, <laughs> thinking, "Well, these were these were real. These are animal heads that belong to a real polo playing family." And uh, they said you couldn't ship exotic animals across straight state lines, <laughs> so they wouldn't take them either. All right, Catherine. She's a fabulous character. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I read the book, the first thing I thought about was Auntie Mame. <laughs> That's what I thought, too. <laughs> Ex- except she didn't have a nephew that she was doing all, yeah, of, yeah. <laughs> all, all of this with. So you want to sum up for us? Um, you know, I think one of the things that attracted me to Gertie was she's just the opposite of everything I am. Um, I've never held a loaded gun in my life. Um, I'm terrified of snakes. And I, and I think I'm a pretty good mother, but I just, you know, I guess if, if there could have been another life for me, I would love to have had a life just that uninhibited and that, um, just to take that opportunity to do everything, to say yes to everything. And that's what Gertie did. Well, Catherine Smith, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign, and so we're going to have to sign off. And I want to thank you today for being with us on The Journal. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I felt like at times it was a romp with Auntie Mame, listening to Catherine Smith describe the life and times of this very interesting woman who, by chance, was born in South Carolina and then spent much of her life saving one of the state's most historic buildings, the Midway Plantation. An interesting sidelight to South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.